0: The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason Deroshi, Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles
1: to Isaiah 54. I'm using the mic this morning because I lost my voice this week. It is on the repair, praise the Lord, but for your sake, I will talk quieter and hopefully the mic can pick it up. Our focus today is in Isaiah 54 11 through 17. This chapter comes as a celebration of the new covenant in light of what the suffering servant accomplishes in Isaiah 52:13 through 53:12. So it's it's major transition in the book. All the book has been anticipating how it is that good news can be proclaimed in a world filled with sinners where God's wrath is just and that wrath becomes poured out on the suffering servant for the many, and it gives rise to a new stage of opportunity, of relationship. The servant gives rise and gives birth to multiple servants. So, he's a father, and he has a bride, and that bride is Jerusalem. And it's her that we hear about in our message today. You see up on the screen a structure of the passages, I've understood it, and there is two sections, each with commandments motivated by promises. So, the fact that it's dominated by promises coming from God means that it's just saturated with grace, and yet these promises are, at one level, Conditional. Meaning that you need to heed the commandment in order to experience the promise. And yet God's the very one who has established a context wherein, even for sinners, he becomes 100% for us. And where what Jesus does, what this servant does in Isaiah 53, is not simply purchase justification, he purchases progressive sanctification. And so He is at work in the lives of these people. And so the challenge, the call is, sing. Expand your dwelling. Don't fear further disgrace. Why? Because God has done something and because He is doing something. The, the proper response to these promises that are motivating people to sing. I'm going to increase... Your descendants. That's why you should sing. Sing in light of what is coming. Expand your dwelling because this this place is going to be filled with uh, new offspring. Not only from the Jewish nation, but from the nations at large. And don't fear further disgrace because I have removed it. I am for you fully. And then today, we move into this next section. A proper response to God's promises of protection and justice. That's what what grounds, what God is, is is declaring, He is bringing for the people that's supposed to alter their lifestyle. The context for their response, a grounding in righteousness, and then the nature of their response, intriguingly, In light of what God has done and will do, he calls them not to be oppressive. Not to be oppressive. When evil is done to you, don't respond to evil with evil. So let's consider how this works. But all of this I just want to put into this framework. God has granted to us his precious and very great promises. This chapter is loaded with new covenant promise. And He has given us these precious and very great promises so that they can change who we are today. What we hope for or what we dread tomorrow should impact our ethic in the present. So He's given us His precious and very great promises so that through them, as we bank our faith on them, a hope is generated and what we hope for will will impact our Lifestyle. It will make us become partakers of the divine nature. As we listen to the promises of God, the pure in heart will see Him. We'll see Him. How much do you want to see Him? That's the promise that's motivating us to be pure. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving make your requests known to God, and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. The promise is peace. But it will only come when you turn from anxiety and prayer with thanksgiving. What we hope for, or what we dread tomorrow, will change who we are today. And this passage is saturated with new covenant promises for a people calling them to be a different type of person. Through these promises, we become partakers of the divine nature. We begin to look more like God. We begin to treasure what He treasures, walk where He walks, hate what He hates. And in the process, we escape the corruption of the world that's brought about by evil desire. New desires are awakened in our soul through the promises of God. And in meditating on these promises, we combat the desires that sin wants to generate through its own promises. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would meet us now. Thank you for your word. Father, this is a hard world, and this text is not going to be sugarcoating anything. The reality is that you are over all. We don't understand why you do all that you do, but the curse is real, and we're living amidst it, and yet in Christ we have overcome. So help us take heart in the midst of evil days. Living as wise, not as foolish. And walking as you have called us to walk in hope. Hope that is seen is not hope. So let us keep our faith until the day it becomes sight. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. O afflicted one, that's where our text begins, and it's talking to Jerusalem storm-tossed and not comforted. That's where Jerusalem has been in Isaiah's vision, looking ahead to exile under the judgment of God. And it's where all the world has been. Under the judgment of God. And yet he reaches into that world and he claims his bride. And through that bride brings offspring. Remember Paul... In Galatians chapter 4, verse 26, he says the Jerusalem that is above church is our mother. That's the bride of the Lamb. And we are offspring of that relationship. Storm-tossed, not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antinomy, antimony, and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your wall of precious stones. We're seeing here a context for a response. And it's hard to see the response in the ESV, but I'll draw attention to it when we get there. But right now, there's a context being set. A a context wherein an imperative is supposed to be lived out. And that, imp- that context is such that there's going to be a city, a new dwelling for the people of God that is going to be moved from affliction to rehabilitation. From being broken down to being established with remarkable beauty. All these words, agate, carbuncles, precious stones, sapphires, these are things that i've seen very little of in my own life but their beauty their beauty yahweh is promising to rebuild jerusalem not a jerusalem first on earth a jerusalem that is the place where he will dwell among a people a jerusalem that is a person that god can talk to And whose foundations will be made new. The testimony here is that Jerusalem will no longer be afflicted. Well, up to this point in the book, we've read much. The Lord's founded Zion. In her, the afflicted of his people will find refuge. This is a, a future vision of those who've identified with him finding refuge in this city. When the afflicted, ESV says the poor, but same word is in our text. When the afflicted and the needy seek water and there is none and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will enter in. I will answer them. I will not forsake. Sing for joy, O heavens. Exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. Why? Because... I'm envisioning that God's going to enter in and comfort His people, comfort His afflicted ones. Oppressed by sin, your own and others, I'm going to enter into your affliction and heal your wounds. Hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk but not with wine. What are you drunk with? The cup of the wrath of God. It causes you to stagger, to not think rightly. We have a world filled with drunken people who don't think about reality rightly. God's going to enter into that disorientation in the evil world and bring soberness to people's minds where they're going to be able to see and hear and speak clearly about reality, about that which is most real, about that which is most beautiful. Behold, I've taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. Instead, I will remove it from you, and I will put it on all those who torment you. God's words to the afflicted. Beautiful in splendor. Do these words about stones... Recall any other text to you in the the Bible? Revelation, okay. Revelation 21. We're going to get there in just a second, but Revelation 21 draws on two texts, especially this one and Isaiah 60. Here's the one from Isaiah 60. Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory... Of the Lord has risen upon you. This is not plural, you. This is feminine singular, you, namely the city. Light is risen upon you, Jerusalem. And the nations shall come to your light, kings to your brightness of your rising. For the coastlands shall hope for me, for the name of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, because He has made you, Jerusalem, beautiful. Foreigners shall build up your walls and their kings shall minister to you for in my wrath I struck you but in my favor I had mercy on you your gates shall be open continually day and night they shall not be shut that people may bring to your to you the wealth of the nations and with their kings led in procession god is envisioning a, a new inhabitation for his presence that will draw in people from all over the globe. Of every color, of every shape, of every language. Be drawn in to find new residency, new identities. We've seen in Psalm 87, new birth certificates. This one was born there, associated with Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Here's the Revelation text. And you'll see, keep your eye in Isaiah 54, you'll see it. And then just recall what we just read in Isaiah 60. The wall was made of jasper, the city of pure gold. This comes right after John is told, come out and see the bride of God. And he went out and he looked up and he saw a city. That's the bride. Jerusalem is the bride of the Lamb. And we are the offspring. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its light. The Lamb of Isaiah 53, who was wounded for our transgressions. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. This is the vision of the bride, and the Jerusalem that is above, that will become the new earth, that will come down, is That's where our residency is. We are exiles on earth. Our residency is there. Our identification is there. And the day is coming when we will be home. Not because we will leave this place, but because the place that is our home will be here. A new earth with new heavens in fellowship with our God.
2: John. When you ask what um, other scriptures precious stones and all that yeah. recalls. It seems to me in some ways it also recalls the uh, garb of the Levitical priest, uh, of the
1: precious stones on their the breastplate and in, in the sense of continuity from there to there. Yeah, so let me work with that a little bit. The recalling of the 12 precious stones on the breastplate of the priest... Each different stone representing one of the tribes of Israel. Twelve gates in the city representing a restored, reconstituted people of God. Israel, all of whom find their identity, Jew and Gentile alike, in Christ, who has reestablished around himself through the twelve apostles a new people. All of those twelve stones were. For beauty and for glory, God says, in order to identify the high priest as one who was himself precious. Teresa and I have a dear friend. Her name is Christine. She got her PhD in Old Testament. And she actually just talked on faith life a few weeks ago for Paul. Um, But she focused her, her doctoral dissertation on priestly garments. And one of the things that she found out is that, as you look at the priestly garments in the Old Testament, at the the, the underwear, the priestly underwear, was made of the same material that is that that surrounds the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies. And as you move out from the Holy of Holies, the materials that are used are increasingly rougher. And as you move out from the layers of the priestly garment, they are identical to the materials that are established in the tabernacle. What this means is that the priest was supposed to be a walking picture of the temple itself. And the closer that you got to the priest's heart, that's where the law of God is supposed to be. The law that was in the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies, displaying the character of God, that the priest in his own Being in Israel was supposed to be a a walking display of the temple. And we are a kingdom of priests. We are a holy people. Why? Because we ourselves now house the law, have become the Ark of the Covenant. That is, we've become the temple itself. Yet, yes, a temple while we're here, but the day is coming when we won't be a temple anymore because a temple by its nature distinguishes the holy from the common. We're in a cursed world. The church is here as a holy people, but we're separated, distinct from that which is common. We are the very residence of God, and it's moved from physical Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. The temple of God has expanded to fill the earth. The church has grown, the presence of God resting upon us, the spirit of Christ in us, and we are to put on display the glories and the beauty of God that is directly related to our residency, the glories and the beauty of Jerusalem. So yes, that would be the second text. I didn't go there, but that would be the second text, and I think it's intentional, because what's at stake is the beauty and the glory of this new city people is identical to the beauty and the glory of what was supposed to be put on display among the priests.
3: First off, John beat me to that. uh,
1: (laughs) Well done, John. Well done.
3: (laughs) Two things. uh, It strikes me that as the passage begins and the backdrop is established
1: so the grays, the darks black, black have all been overcome by brilliance and beauty and, and black color black and black luster world. it's almost like a yeah. rainbow coming into a it's storm a then, uh, yeah uh,
3: I, I recall sitting on a flight some years ago into a discussion with him about rock cutting and his vocation and one of the things I took away from that that has always influenced me my way to encounter jewels in the Bible is he said to me that the ultimate value of a jewel has essentially
1: The level of preciousness of a jewel is dependent on how well it reflects and refracts light. And so the level to which it's able to put on display in various ways light is how a gemologist would assess the quality of a gem. So a piece of granite is able to reflect in small ways due to the little bit of... What's The dark going against the crystals. um, And yet, something that's fully clear, whether it's sapphire or diamond, is able to um, display the glory of light, all the more. It it reminds me somewhat of, like everything in this room, we might have eyes that work, but the only reason we can delight in it is because of light. And far too often we live in our world delighting in what we see and fail to recognize the one who is making it possible. Like, without the light, there would be no recognition of the beauty. So allow your eyes once in a while, not simply to rest on what the light is awakening, but to rise up to revel in the light itself.
2: Thank you. Can I add that the cuts to the stone, the way that God cuts our dross away, also causes an increased reflection of light? So true. So true.
1: True. But it adds so infinitely to its beauty because of the reflections that arise from the cutting Yeah, the cutting process helps enhance the light. If
2: I can just ask a quick question. Sure. When you speak of the New Jerusalem as the bride, yes. and then we are a part of the offspring, yes. um, I had thought that we were the bride itself.
1: Yeah, so the question is, how do we understand this distinction between the bride, which it seems as though sometimes we're called that, and yet we're also the offspring of this union. And the images is really a one-in-the-many reality. Yes, we are. As the, the corporate reality, all of the people of God together are the bride, And yet in other texts like this one, it speaks of us as the offspring. So in Isaiah 53, verse 10, the offspring that are the suffering servants are those who are his. We become his offspring. And in Isaiah 54, the barren one is Jerusalem, who we're told in Isaiah 54, 3, has offspring offspring that will include the nations. So here, Jerusalem is being portrayed as the mother of an offspring that are the servants. So this text would portray us as the offspring of the bride, but the bride is, in another respect, no different than the people that make up that bride. It's not a separate object. It's just... Oh, a different way of talking about the metaphor. Let's move on. Familiar verse, perhaps, to some. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. I see this as, I think, the result So here's Jerusalem, the afflicted one, who has children, all of whom will be taught by the Lord. This re-established, beautified Jerusalem, when that happens, the result will be, it says, that those who are part of a community, living, identified with the city, will have a new knowledge. They will all be taught by the Lord. Anybody's Bible, point them to any certain texts? Okay, the law written on your heart. Where's that found? Mm -hmm. Jeremiah thirty-one. Okay, we'll go there in just a second. Any other text that you see in your Bible, like a cross reference next to, they will all be taught by the Lord. I don't know what it is, but it says that you won't teach your brother saying no the Lord, for they will all know me from the least. Good. So Adrian's text was Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty. Three, and yours is 3134. We'll go there in just a second. Anybody else have a cross-reference? John 6.45. We're going to see a citation of this very verse in Jesus' mouth. So he's going to provide us a divine commentary on how to read it. Let's consider. This is the context of Isaiah. Here it's saying you're all going to be taught. By God himself, the prophets have been teaching, and yet nobody has ears to hear, right? Nobody is learning. Yet there's an implication in this text. You will all be taught by the Lord with the result that there's going to be peace among the very children of Jerusalem. They're all going to be taught from the least to the greatest, and God himself is going to instruct them. This is what we read about Isaiah's audience, the vision of all that I'm proclaiming to you, has become like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read, can you read? Give, give the book. And she looks down and says, it's, it's as if it's words that are sealed. I can't, I can't even read it. That's Isaiah's audience. That's how, how they perceive his writings. Yet, just a few verses later, it says the day is coming when the deaf will hear the words of the book. The blind of the eyes will see blind of the eyes. The eyes of the blind. They will see. No longer will the book be unreadable. Why? Because a new instruction is going to be given that will overcome all resistance. Overcome any spiritual learning disability. The Lord has given me, this is the Messiah talking, one of the servant songs. The Lord's given me the tongue of those who are taught. The first one who gets taught by God supremely is the Messiah himself. And then he begins to help others. He begins to teach on God's behalf. Helping others learn. God teaches me that I, might, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning I have my devotions. And he awakens my ear as one who is taught. This is, this is the words of the Christ in Isaiah who needs this morning by morning time. Here's the Jeremiah 31 text. It starts out, I could have started there. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their heart and I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor... And teach his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. In Isaiah's Israel, there's young kids and there's old gray hairs who don't know God. They're part of the community. They've grown up in the context of the community where God has been at the center, in Jerusalem, and yet they've truly never seen beauty, they've never encountered glory, their ears have been deaf. From the least to the greatest, it's been that way. So that Prophets have to say, you need to know the Lord. But the day is coming in the new covenant when everyone who's part of that covenant will have been taught by God. Everyone. Everyone. Look at how Jesus talks. When we're talking about this teaching of God, we're talking about the awakening, the effective work of the Spirit to awaken a heart to treasure what it never treasured before. We're not talking about having a, you know, double PhD brain. Now I know God. We're talking about a child's ability to be awakened to the love of his or her parent. Yes, I've been taught. I've been taught by God. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me. Unless God acts first, He's the decisive mover in every salvation. In every bit of movement from spiritually disabled to spiritually healed. He's the mover. Learning disabilities are, over, are overcome only by Him. No one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father who sent me draws him. And that's the one I'll raise up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all, All, everyone who's associated with this new Jerusalem, all of them will have been taught by God. They will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Do you get that? If you've come to Jesus, you've been taught by God. If you've learned from the Father, if you've heard Him first, you come to Jesus. And Jesus is saying that's fulfillment of the very promise that Isaiah was making. God is your teacher. If you've come to Jesus, you've already been learning from the best teacher in the universe. He's awakened something new in your soul. A new knowledge. A new ability to see beauty. To celebrate His favor to embrace His bigness, to receive comfort from His protection. You know the Lord. He's teaching you. All your children will be taught by the Lord, and great shall be their peace. In righteousness, you shall be established. We've talked a lot in these weeks about peace and about righteousness. So I'm just going to draw attention to just a few verses in recollection. In the day when God destroys death, He's already done this and it's not yet. But in Isaiah 25, which we spent a very long time on, it was when we talked about the millennium. In Isaiah 25, the death that he is going to destroy is not only for one people, it's, it's death on a global scale when he brings all that is hostile to him to an end. In that day, he says, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city, Jerusalem. Jerusalem. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. What's the city? It's it's salvation. This is a figurative use of Jerusalem again. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. Oh God, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Righteous nation, perfect peace. So trust in the Lord forever, for in God is an everlasting rock. Behold, I'm promising you a king. He will come. He will reign in righteousness. Princes will rule in justice. The effect of the righteousness that he will bring will be peace. And in an already-but-not-yet world, we need to know this. A peace that can be gained in our soul that is the quieting of anxiety because of the peace that we know we have with our God being 100% for us and never to condemn. A God who has declared that he will right all wrongs and, and, and fix all problems and he'll do so on our behalf. In that moment, he won't count us as part of the problem. He'll count us as part of the answer. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, all of this simply provides a context for getting to the heart of this passage. And in the ESV, it actually gets indented. And you might miss the fact that in the same way that in 54.1, we get a commandment, sing... And in 54.2, we get a commandment, enlarge. And in 54.4, we get a commandment, fear not. In 54.14, we also get a commandment. But you don't see it in the ESV. The commandment comes right after that statement about righteousness. It says, you shall be far from oppression. It sounds like a promise, but in the Hebrew text, it's actually a commandment. That is, be far from oppression. Why? Because you need not fear. Be far from terror, for it shall not come near you. In light of the fact that an oppressor will not overcome you don't look like an oppressor because you will not need to fear don't live in dread today this is this is some interesting logic here let's see if we can track it you can see my translation in the handout i gave you if you want to follow along with how i'm reading this text The charge not to oppress others. Here's the structure. Be far from oppression and terror. The initial reasons. Because you don't need to fear. And because you'll be protected. You don't need to fear the trouble that's going to come externally. Or the tensions that will rise internally. You don't need to fear them because ultimately, it will not come near you. That's what it says at the end of 14. The terror will not reach you. And oppression, you shall not fear it. You won't need to fear... And so, stay far from oppression. I think it's saying don't don't be oppressive. I think that's what it's saying. Now, I could go into, I could unpack that, but I'm going to let Isaiah unpack it because that's what he does in verses 15 through 17. He takes that single statement be far from oppression and be far from terror with two small reasons, and now he expands on them. And what he has to say may be a little surprising to some. The promise that Yahweh will put an end to the coming strife against you. Look at verse 15. The ESV says, if anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. That's a very strange statement. A week and a half ago, I got an email from... No, it was more than that now. A month ago, I got an email from Pastor John when he was in the last week of finishing up his his writing leave. And he's writing a massive book on the providence of God. And it's taken months and it will take more months. Another full writing leave ahead of him just to finish this book bringing together his understanding of all the texts that he's identified over all of his, now almost 40 years of ministry, all the texts associated with his big view, his big God theology. How does he capture them and put them together? But he wrote me and he said, Jason, what do you do with this verse? Look how the ESV has it. If anyone stirs up strife, it's not from me. And he, he was like, he told me, I'm not afraid of a verse like this. I can explain it. What God means, it's not from me. It's not at the core of my being to bring strife. I, that, that, that would fit here. It's not my desire to overcome you. God is not one to tempt. But that very word for tempt is the word for test. And we see God testing people all over the place. But his revealed will of all tests is that we would pass, not fail. And so you take that one word and in certain context we, we render it as tempt instead of test because that's, that's the purpose of the devil, that we might fail. And God, That's not God's revealed will. So Piper was wrestling with this and I, the week before, had already translated it for this unit and I had wrestled with it myself. And earlier, sometime this summer, I was working on this same word, a, cer- a certain word in this one clause for my... Zephaniah commentary, and I had come to different conclusions. And I had done an analysis of all the texts in Isaiah that included this one word. And, and I, th- what, it, what it means usually is not a negative not. It's the word for end. Like the ultimate end of something. The goal, the terminus, where it's heading. That's what this word is. And I think consistently in Isaiah, that's how we should render it. So I render it, if anyone stirs up strife, that is, whose end is from me. I've determined his end, and it won't be good. Whoever stirs up strife, whose end is from me, whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Even there, God declares what his end is. His end is certain. I think that's what it's pointing to. Whoever stirs up strife, it's not that he didn't come from me. That's not the point of the text. I don't believe. The point of the text is to say his end is certain. And I've determined it. And that's supposed to give hope to a people who might be prone to want to take justice into their own hands. So it's right here. So it says, therefore, be far from us. uh, Sorry. Behold, someone will surely stir up strife, whose end is from me. Whoever is stirring up strife with you shall fall on account of you. That's how I render it. Consider how God talks elsewhere in Isaiah. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor, be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Whatever you plan to do, to stand against my purposes, no purpose of yours can be th- will stand. All of my purposes will stand. None of them can be thwarted. Speak a word, but it will not stand. Why? Because God is with us. That's what the remnant declares. Now, we have to put this into a framework. Does this mean I can anticipate standing in Christ with the full armor of God that no trouble will come? Oh no, fiery darts will come and that's why you need the shield. But the whole point of the armor is to protect you from the trial, which is certain to come. So, How do we put that together? God is with us. Whatever you seek to do against me will not stand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded, the Lord says. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you. But in the end, there will be none. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. Why? Because I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. This is hopeful news. And I think it aligns with the theology that I think he's declaring here. Don't be oppressive and don't fear. The terror is going to come. But it ultimately will not overcome you. I just get
3: back to still struggling with who's and is from me and what that says in relationship to the someone who will sh And I I'm still not quite following
1: on that. I'm understanding God to be declaring. Strife is going to come your way. That someone who raises it, whatever his name may be, his end is certain. His end is from me. Meaning, his terminus, his destruction. It's, it's been purposed by me. What's going on here is not outside of my control. It's actually part of my purpose. For magnifying the beauty of my city. He's going to unpack the purposefulness of his control of even the evil that's being done to get done against his bride. Beloved, here's what I think he's saying Flee from oppression, that is, never avenge. Don't respond to evil with evil. Why? Because my vengeance is better than your vengeance. Entrust it to me. Because you can be confident. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. Don't hold bitterness in your soul toward the one who has done harm to you. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. How do I gain such power for that, God? Because you know this. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. I know what's been done against you. And as days increase here in the West, we will likely become more like many of the places on the planet already. Where the church will become tighter and smaller and cleaned out of all the fakeness. And in that context, the declaration is, I will be with you, and the one who is standing against you, his end, I have already destined.
2: Because we're dealing with sort of responses to, to this world, and I want to find an application here. As, as um, we are in fact or, um opposition suffering so suffer. You know, the the deeper we under, the deeper understanding of what we have for the word is, is our shield and our protection and all of that. What do you do with um you know you talk about the faith that's being clean up. What do you do with people who just because of weakness are unable to kind of survive this as as champions? You know we I see see believers sometimes who go go toward that march toward death, and some are so courageous and they glory in their testimonies, and others are just, that's not who they are. They're not strong. How do you deal with this? Uh, Is that just not a a right question to ask of these passages?
1: No, it's a fine question. What do we do with those that don't, Find the strength to persevere. And I would say two things. It's very difficult at points for us as outsiders to be able to assess whether there was a heart of perseverance. And second, God knows who are His. There's all the reality of fruit... And those who deny me, I will deny before my Father. All that is true. And yet, there is also weakness, mental illness, and Christ came to save weak people. So, I'm thinking about very specific pastoral situations, like the suicide of a son. And where potential chemical imbalance, demonic oppression, seemingly choked out the word that was planted in the soil of his heart. And how are we... It's it's difficult in such moments to, for us as outsiders, meaning God's the only one who knows. if, If there had been genuine faith at one point, Um, it's difficult at times to assess weakness versus strength and, and the nature of the perseverance. But I know that we have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end the confidence we had at the beginning. That's how we know we've come to share in Christ. And so the call is to to persevere with, with the kind of trust that recognizes God, God wins and he's for me. I, I just want, let me just read verse 16 and then I'm going to draw attention to another verse and then we'll be done. I'm the one who created the smith. Who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon that will be used against you. This is big God theology, but it also gives us great hope because we know that no blow of a terrorist is happening by chance. Every bit of evil worked by Satan. He's like a dog on a leash and can only go as far as God permits. And God will one day say enough and throw him into the pit of hell and redeem his own. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed and you shall confute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. There's so much I could go into here, but I just want to draw attention to... I'm going to go down to... (laughs) Let me just... Uh, I'll do two verses. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously, graciously, hear that, graciously give us all things? What about cancer? Is that part of all things? Look at how he talks later in the passage and uses the exact same phrase. At... um, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Shall any of these separate us from God's love? As it is written, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things. Graciously give us all things. In all of these things. Tribulation, famine, persecution, danger, hunger. He will, he will, he will graciously work in us what is pleasing in his sight, putting us in a context of needing help so that we can find the most beautiful helper. Because he opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And in that context, in that context, wherein He has graciously given us those all things, we are reminded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. And finally, look at how Jesus talks I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And then, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. This is not a testimony of easy life. No, he who leaves father and mother and houses and children for my sake, how much more will I give him? Houses and mothers and children with persecutions. That was in our text this morning. And in the end, eternal life. The testimony of our text today is don't respond to evil with evil because you can be certain I will put an end to all of that evil and I am for you 100%. And though you die, yet you will live. And let that promise Fill your heart, this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord who are identified with the servant. This is their righteousness that is their vindication from me. this is it descendants, dwelling, no disgrace, protection, justice, and this is what 's supposed to look we 're supposed to look like singing and enlarging our dwelling, getting ready for more people to come in, not fearing and not oppressing. This is new covenant hope in a very real new covenant world that includes curse. Let me close in prayer. Father, thank you that you are worthy and that you who are worthy are making something beautiful, splendid, glorious out of a people that you've claimed for yourself. God, we don't feel beautiful too often. We feel like clay pots, and yet that's the point. In order to show that the surpassing power comes not from us, but from you, so that it's about your fame and your name and your glory, we nearly being reflections, refractors of the great light. Make us more like you and give us hope amidst suffering. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. Daroshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.